If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is the time for the podcast. John is dressed up as a beef eater. I can see him now. He is in his full red, white, and blue, the butcher's apron all over him, bleeding a bleeding butcher's apron. He has got a roll call of Commonwealth countries. He is standing erect to God save the king and his monarchist weaknesses are oozing out of every pore. How are you doing there, my monarchist friend? I am wonderful. I am absolutely <laughs> wonderful. I love the pomp and ceremony. What about Just that? like my mother, my nationalist what, what mother, loving that? it. Oh, well, I know that. What about that clown fest? My God. Oh, it's my incredible. And, and what was amazing is that we, I'm sure you did as well, pledged allegiance. John, you know how deep my affection for the monarchy runs. You know that it's something... Well, I, I told you about our, our Queen mug, didn't I? Yes. That, that we, the Chan <laughs> That was has, out. That was out. The mug that Chan got in East Belfast in primary school was out with a picture yes. of the Queen. I'd say you had the whole tea set out. Or a silver jubilee as I was doing my... Ah, I was breaking out in a rash. So we are going to talk about Britain, the UK, the State of the Union... What is going on there? We're going to use the coronation as a moment to actually think about and talk about what is going on in our closest neighbour. Yes. My own sense is that I would subscribe to the Patrick Frayne, who wrote that fantastic article in the Irish Times about a clown being at the head of state. And it's again, just Google it. Patrick Frayne clowns right. the monarchy. It's uh, it's 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 a it's a brilliant one, and it's UK a bit harsh, just, though. I mean, Charles. I mean, he's actually quite a a lovable guy, isn't he? No, I mean, as a person, John is having a monorgasm at the moment. <laughs> a mon- <laughs> he is. <laughs> I love it. But actually, just speaking of the coronation, I don't know if you saw any of it. The whole thing was it was all a bit medieval, actually, <laughs> and it was multi faith and all the rest. But the the strangest moment for me was seeing Rishi Sunak reading from the Bible. Yeah. Now, Rishi is a, is a full-on Hindu, as we know, and it was supposed to be a multi-faith ceremony, which is grand. Yeah. But why was he reading from the Bible? It would have made an awful lot more sense to me if he did a Hindu blessing yeah. or prayer or reading or whatever, rather than reading from the Bible. Yeah. Because that would have made it a proper multi-faith ceremony. Yeah, that's true. But as it was, he looked really nervous and uncomfortable. And I don't know if that was 
because of what he was reading or where he's reading it or the fact that he's just got a hammering in the local elections. <laughs> John there is having his uh, full on monorgasm. Uh, it's an affliction. <laughs> it's a feeling. It's a stern he gets. Yes. It's, it's an equal opportunity monorgasmic <laughs> character. Anyway, the one thing we will say, John, if we're talking about British politics, is that the local elections are a bit like our European elections. All sorts of fruitcakes get involved and get elected yeah. simply because it's like, a, it's like a protest vote. So, yes, the Tories got absolutely hammered. And, yes, that confirms the Labour's lead in the opinion polls. And, yes, if this were to happen in a general election, it would be a massive landslide for Labour. But we just word of caution, the local elections tend not necessarily to play out in the general elections. So there's just like yes. a moment in time where people are angry and they kick out and they say, okay, I'm going to give you a bloody nose. But actually, the very same people, it seems, when they go into the actual ballot box for the real deal, the, the result tends to be a much closer run between the Tories and Labour. Well, I suppose that remains to be seen in the next general election, which yeah. is when? It's another two years or something, isn't it? Two years, man, two or three years, I think. Jesus. A lot of damage away. can be done then. I know, you never know. Gary Lineker could be coronated. <laughs> Well, let's talk about something serious, right? So we're going to be talking to Robert Shrimsley, who is yeah. the chief political correspondent of the Financial Times. Old friend of the show, old mate, somebody who will be at Dorky, one of the great writers, actually, one of the great, absolutely beautiful satirical writer, but also great, great analytical head on about the state of the UK. But what it comes down to really, John, is it is the economy stupid, Right. Do you remember yeah. James Carville, the yes. raging Cajun? Yes. The man who was Bill Clinton's political advisor, right? Who also said something beautiful when they were talking about Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania. He said that Pennsylvania is Philadelphia here, Pittsburgh here, and Alabama in the middle, mm. which, which was so good because yeah. it's a Trump state when it went Trump the last time, but not this time around. Yeah, so you remember I drove through it. I drove from one end to the other in my epic journey across the, the States. Uh, it's actually it's, a beautiful state. But he's right. There's there's not that much in the middle apart from beautiful rolling hills and meadows and, and lots of trees. John is Jack Kerouac on the road. A <laughs> big, big hero from the 1950s. <laughs> in the turtleneck. But when I say it's the economy stupid, what is... Martin Wolf of the FT wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago saying exactly that. Look, What's actually the problem in the UK? And it's interesting with our president and the economists. Have you noticed the scrap that's I going on? I heard that. I, I, I thought he was a mate of yours, in fairness. The press is a mate of mine. He is yeah. a mate of mine. I'll just tell you about it. But it's a very interesting observation. And I see that many Irish economists reacted very, very quickly. Yeah. And given that well, we're talking about the coronation, it brings to mind the old RAF expression, which is you only take the flack when you're over the target which is a great expression. So the OEF yeah. guys used to say that. So it's obvious that the president has hit a raw nerve with what I would call the blackboard economists, right? Well, I have to say, Mac, like I, I heard the speech and I agreed with an awful lot of what he was saying, but it felt to me that his ire was directed at the wrong people. It wasn't so much the economists, it was more the policy and policy makers. Yeah. Well, I just, I don't think there is such a thing as the economist. It's a very broad church. It's more Catholic than Calvinist well, that's the other church, point, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. so you don't necessarily have to abide by every single rule in the scripture. But I think what he was talking about was what I would call the blackboard economists, the teachers, right? The, hmm. the, the people who've been in academia for a long, long time, who don't seem to 
ever have done other jobs beyond that. And maybe as a result of that might have a slightly narrow view of the world because yeah. their world is the blackboard. And I think yeah. that's what yeah. he was having a go at. And because again, Michael D is from academia and you know, John, that there is no scrap so vicious and yet so inconsequential as a scrap between academics. <laughs> as somebody said, true, true, true. the hatreds are so high and the stakes are so low. And that's exactly, <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's, like a, it's like a bitch fight in a university. That's what we're looking at, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. But to come back to the UK, what is absent in the UK and the source, I think, of all their problems is this bizarre thing called economic growth. Because economic growth enables other things. It should not necessarily ever be the be-all and end-all, and you should never reduce a society to a number in the same way as you should never reduce a school child to the points they get. You know, the word awful thing at the end of kids go to school in Ireland, they spend 10 years in school, 12, 15 years, whatever it is, they come out and somebody says, oh my God, he got 500 points. So yeah. the entire experience of school is reduced to this reductionist numerical idea, right? And I think there, Michael D is right. But the broader thing is, what does economic growth enable? And what does the world look like in the absence of economic growth? And maybe even more interestingly, what is economic growth? And if we come back to one of our, the bedrock of one of our heroes, John, is Schumpeter, that yep, economic indeed. growth is a reflection of amazing creativity in the society. Yeah. And if you decide that's the case, then economic growth is much more interesting. Well, we might come back to it, but my point is the UK is an example of what happens when there is no economic growth. So when there's no economic growth, the first thing is the state cannot deliver on its promises because it doesn't have the tax revenues. Yes. So first thing is your economy becomes unstable. Right. So, so what is in in the UK like? What is the kind of productivity and growth? Uh, incredibly at the low, right? So you 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 got your John. You see, I'm telling you, you're you're miles ahead. You're miles as ahead. Always, right? Mike, as always, as Mike. always, as always, as it's always the case. This is always the case. So basically, in the UK, productivity is the elixir of everything. Right? Productivity is in effect how much stuff you got to put in and how much stuff you get out. Yes. I yeah. always compare it to an engine, right? Which is over the course of the last forty years car engines have become much, much more efficient. So less petrol goes in, more energy comes out, right? Yeah. Okay, so imagine the economy is the same. So the, the way in which the economy has to work all the time is you say, how much inputs are we putting in and what are we getting out for? That's where the magic happens, right? And of course, the number that you should look at is productivity, which is output per head. Yeah. And then there's a thing called total productivity, John, not just labor productivity or capital productivity, but a measurement called total productivity. What has happened in the UK is the following. Sorry, can I just ask you, what's the difference between total productivity and regular productivity? No, no. So, so I'm just saying most people just talk about the productivity of labor, right? But I also think you've got to talk about the productivity of capital. And you put okay. the two of them together and you get total productivity, right? So gotcha. That's an important point. And you cannot have sustainable economic growth without sustainable increases in productivity. What you can have is you can have sugar rushes where you can cut taxes, for example, you could boost spending, cut taxes, do what uh, Quasi, Kwaitung and Liz Trust were trying to do. Yeah. And you can engineer a short-term sugar rush that boosts the growth rate. But typically, if you don't have productivity, that growth rate will dissipate in a current account deficit, and higher levels of inflation, 
and ultimately the misallocation of resources, as economists saying, which basically means buying shite, spending stuff on shit things. Okay. Yeah. 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 Misallocation of resources sounds better. But actually, what it is, what it is, what it is, is pissing your money up against the wall, right? That's a much better image as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. You just piss your money up against the wall, right? So that is the core fundamental problem around which the UK orbits in this erratic, boom, bust, sugar rush, non-sugar rush, sort of episodic approach to the economy. But if you don't have economic growth, A, your economy is unstable, but B, your politics is unstable. Yeah. The reason that yeah. people vote for radical parties is because they feel they're not getting enough out of the present status quo, i.e. they're not getting enough out of the economy today, which is they're not getting enough of an economic growth. So where the president is wrong, I suspect, or not wrong, maybe misdiagnosed situation is economic growth is an enabler. And that's important, right? Mm. But it's not the be-all and end-all. Yeah, yeah. But what we see across the water is a great example of what happens in a society when economic growth stops. And the reason economic growth stops is because productivity is very, very low. Yeah. And you can't have increase in wages when you have low productivity. So, of course, people's incomes fall back over time. So all that's in the mix. And that, yeah. I think, in a nutshell, is what's wrong with the UK. But, John, I think, why don't we go to London? Yeah. And why don't we talk to Robert Shrimsley of the FT to get a feeling of what it's like after you've had your street party. Yes, my cucumber sandwiches. With your queen mum tea towel wrapped over your head because it's too hot. It's 14 degrees over there. My Vicky sponge. Your Vicky sponge. I was up all night baking away. Exactly. You've been singing, oh, blighty. And (laughs) such such are the great ones. Let's go over to London and talk to Robert Shimsley. Six months ago, the UK economy had a bond crisis an interest rate crisis, the currency was falling, the government lasted as long, I think, as Brian Clough at Leeds, maybe even as long as Sal Allardyce might last in Leeds. That's another one. But now the UK economy doesn't seem on the surface to be as bad as stabilised a wee bit. So let's go to London. Let's talk to Robert Shrimsley of the FT and let's get a, a kind of an idea of the state of the union politically of the UK before we talk economics. Robert, how are you? How are you, David? I'm good, thank you. Are you full of red, white, and blue little mugs? Little, I, I, I can't say I am. Though you're definitely beginning to see it on the streets. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. You're beginning. So I, I, I was in um, Westminster earlier today, and you're seeing the flags. Although interesting, of course, because it's a coronation, um, you're seeing the flags of all the countries for which he's head of state. So you'll 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 see um, other, other nations' flags as well. Oh, right, of course, I forgot. That's one thing that's sort of... You guys had your chance. You had your chance, you blew it. Ah, could you imagine? We'd love it. We'd love it. Anyway, listen, listen, let's not talk Commonwealth. Let's talk the state of the nation, the UK itself. Where are we at, Robert? Well, I mean, from your introduction, as you said, we were in a crisis six months ago, and we're not. So, you know, in in an age of lower expectations, things are going better. The, the, The bond markets have settled, the currency has settled. The world is clearly convinced that the country is back in the hands of people who are sane and competent managers, which is, I think is fair. Rishi Sunak is clearly a capable man with a basic economic orthodoxy, which markets like to see. One shouldn't overstate this. We, I think we'll just avoid technical recession, but the economy is flat. There is still hope among the Conservatives that they will see a bit of growth in the coming 12 months. But, you know, the economy is flat. Inflation is very sticky. 
Core inflation is not coming down as fast as anybody would like. It's still a view that we will, within the next couple of months, start to see inflation falling substantially as the knock-on of energy prices comes through. So things are stable. What I think is too often forgotten, when you listen to particularly ministers talking, they'll talk about inflation coming down as if that's prices coming down. You know, the, the cost of living issue remained deeply troubling, deeply problematic in the UK. And the last stats I saw from the Office of Budget Responsibility were that households are going to see real household income fall by 5.7% over two years. So people are definitively getting poorer. So things are better than they were. We have a stable government. We have a government that I think looks to the rest of the world like it can be trusted. You can do business with it. These are all good things, even if we once took them for granted. Um, But it it would be overdoing it to say things were looking great. And in terms of I know this sounds very, very, very self-focused, but the feel, I'm always interested, like, what is the society feeling like? Because also when the last time we were there, there was the Scots, the Scottish National Party was in the ascendancy when we were talking last time. It was very, very much the breakup of Britain was part of the chat. There was a sense that, you know, deep down within the British economy, these inequalities we spoke about many, many times were actually creating a society ill at ease with itself. What's the feel like in politics? Well, that's a lot of things to unwrap there. So I think you cannot get past the fundamentals of a country that feels poorer. People yeah. feel poorer. Yeah. The cost of living issue is real. And that is the dominant fact that everybody is facing. So although for all the reasons I just described, things feel better, they feel more even, that shouldn't be mistaken for any sense of well-being. You know, we've had extraordinary run of public service strikes, not all of which are over. People are waiting up to a fortnight for a doctor's appointment, the waiting list for some things on the NHS are going back years. It's going to take a long time to sort public services out. The impact on education is still being felt. The whittling down of funding for local authorities has meant a reduction in core services such as social care. The trains are consistently failing. <laughs> there are numerous ways in which it just feels like Britain doesn't work as it should, as people have come to expect it. And therefore, that is the, that is the fundamental point. And with it has come, I think, a loss of hope and a loss of, ex- a loss of expectation of what the government can actually do to fix things, along with the fact that you are aware of overwhelming global forces, be it the technological revolution, the clean energy revolution, uh, obviously conflict in Ukraine, the tensions between the US and China. This sense that for all the talk of taking back control, I don't think we feel like a nation which really believes it's in charge of its own destiny. So I think that's fundamental. On the union, however, I think things look brighter if you're a unionist in all senses of the term. I think that in Scotland, you know, the, the implosion of the SNP has been a sight to behold. And I don't think anybody expected when Nicola Sturgeon resigned that what has happened to the SNP would have happened. And I think it is very, very likely now that the Labour Party will make meaningful gains in Scotland in the next general election, which will park the issue of independence for a while. Because Although I think the support for independence has not fallen, meaning it, it's always bubbling somewhere in the 40s. Yeah, it's sometimes kind of 45. it goes over 50 percent. Sometimes it goes right down to 41 percent. But it's roughly somewhere in the 40s, and it hasn't really moved. It hasn't grown, which I think is significant given Brexit. It hasn't really grown, but it hasn't moved. And that's a pretty stubborn group of, of thinkers that people haven't changed their mind. And that makes life complicated in working out what's going to happen to the SNP because the SNP are the manifestation of independence. And if you're an independence voter in Scotland, 
there is no particular reason not to vote SNP in a Westminster election, except that you want to get the Conservatives out, and therefore you might lend your votes to Labour. But the fact is, independence can't happen without SNP majorities. If their vote falls and their seats fall, independence, the, the yeah. notion of a second referendum goes on to the back burner. I think they will definitely lose seats at Westminster. They could still be the biggest party, but they will lose 10, 15 seats to Labour. That's a lot. Um, they may struggle to get a majority in Hollywood, Holyrood. They didn't last time, and they will, may struggle again. So I think independence is off the immediate agenda. The fundamentals of this have not gone away. So the fact that it's taken a knockback doesn't mean it's gone, but I would be surprised if it's back in our immediate faces for five, even 10 years, at which point the generational argument against the referendum is gone anyway, because it will then have been about 20 years. In Northern Ireland, I think it's a bit trickier. I think that it will be interesting to see if there is any possibility of getting Stormont returning after local elections, because that clearly remains a fundamental concern. And I think I've always believed, as you know, David, that the unionists are desperately harming their own case by the way they're conducting themselves and that actually calm and, you know, peaceful, easy life in Northern Ireland is the best way to ensure the union. And they're not prepared to have that. So that, I think, is more complex. But even there, I don't think it's an imminent thing. Obviously, if we get a Sinn Féin-led government in Dublin, which I believe we're still on course to have. Yeah, we're on course, given the way our politics works, the PR system and... How difficult it is to actually cobble together a coalition. Sure. Fein might find it quite hard to actually come up with the numbers. If and when that happens, that will change the dynamic dramatically. I think one of the most interesting things, just harking back to the coronation momentarily, was the decision of Michelle O'Neill to attend the coronation, which I certainly couldn't have imagined a Sinn Fein leader doing 10 or 15 years no, ago. No, and, and um, wouldn't have done. And, and wouldn't have done. And that 10 or 15 shows years to me, ago. I mean, apart from anything, it shows to me just how much more strategically smart Sinn Féin is than its opponents. Yeah. But it, I mean, as we always say, the, you know, the DUP is, quoting Abba Eban, I think, is the party that never misses an opportunity exactly. to miss an opportunity. And that's, and that's just it. But can I come back to Brexit? Yeah. So to what extent are British people, particularly English people, who are looking at this litany of, you know, pretty serious problems, falling income, number one, a massive problem, social, geographical, and opportunity inequality. As you said, public services atrophying to an extent that people never really expected, the strikes. And sitting in the corner is this thing called Brexit, which is clearly the instigator of many of these issues, at least on the surface, at least on the surface. Mm. There's nobody connecting the absolute inability to face up to reality, which was Brexit, i.e. being spun a lie, and what is going on now? Or has Brexit kind of slipped out of the posts and nobody's talking about it? Well, I think it has dropped down the agenda a bit, for sure. I mean, I think your, your critique is not fair, even as someone who thinks Brexit was a terrible idea. You know, the, the fact is austerity is what's caused the, the main problems in public services. Uh, and that's a 2010 to 2016 policy. Almost certainly austerity is what caused Brexit. It certainly put the burns under it, the sense that things weren't working for people and that we had a government that wasn't listening to the policy of austerity, the pandemic, which means we ran out of money, followed by the energy price crisis caused by the Ukraine. war. I mean, these are the big things. Brexit has not helped. Brexit has weakened. I mean, I, I sometimes say that Brexit is the comorbidity sort of exposed by all the COVIDs of public policy that arrived. Brexit didn't cause the problem in the British public finances. It didn't cause the energy price spike and the inflation. Um, it didn't cause the hollowing out of public services. But we are weakened in our response to all these problems. 
by Brexit, by the damage it did to the body politic, and by the, the fall in, in growth. It's, it has led to a hitting growth. I mean, what I was getting at there is that a polity that can believe in a dream world called Brexit can believe anything, which is what Brexit actually is indicative of politicians not being serious, is what I'm talking about, and therefore not being able to face, as you said, the austerity. I mean, the simple thing about austerity, just raise taxes. It's not that hard. I mean, the UK is not a poor country. We have raised taxes. Right? We have but, raised taxes. But raise them more, raise revenue more. I mean, it's not that difficult. Countries don't run out of money. They just run out of tactics. Yeah, sure. But I mean, we have a government that doesn't want to raise taxes any more than it's done. And it has been. The tax burden's gone up enormously. It's the highest it's been in the UK since the 1950s, I believe. And while that is not high by the standards of many European nations, it is historically high for Britain. So you have to allow for this fact. You know, the country doesn't want... It doesn't tend to vote for governments that say they're going to raise okay. taxes. Fair but, enough, fair that, enough. That's problematic. As far as Brexit goes, I think that where we are now is a resignation about the issue. It's it done. We're not going to reverse it, maybe in a generation, but not now. And that what is going to happen, and the two main parties are almost aligned on this, is we're going to see how we can make it better. Yeah, the, and just live with it and try to figure and out. And the Labour Party clearly will find it easier emotionally to address the things that are not working than the Conservatives will, for whom it's their flagship policy. But, you know, the deal that was done on the Northern Ireland Protocol by Rishi Sunak is fundamentally an attempt to say, enough of this crap. We actually need to get on with the real issues facing our nation. We've done what we've done, and now we're moving on. Um, But, I mean, then again, you look at something like um, Britain's joining the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a decision which may have some geopolitical value, but is economically a very limited benefit to the country. We're, we're doing a, tra- a global trade deal with countries with whom we already have a trade deal bar Malaysia, I think. So, yes. uh, but, but it's something that it will, it will deepen Brexit because it will make it harder to unpick. Yes, and it'll make it harder to unpick if, if and when or at any stage Britain wanted to go back into have negotiations with the EU on, on re-entry. I mean, I think, I think every year that it goes by, that Brexit goes by, it makes that idea of coming back into the EU more and more remote. Yeah, that seems right. to me. And I think the I mean, I, I, I'm very sceptical about this. I don't think, put it this way, I think that the kind of crisis in Britain that would be required to persuade Brits to vote to return is not a crisis I would wish for, even if I might wish to return. And, you know, I think for one thing, you're going to require the country to accept the abolition of the pound. That's not an easy sell. That is not an easy sell. I also think from the other side, the type of crisis that would have to occur in Europe for Europe to entertain even going back into the negotiations with Britain would also be something you wouldn't really like to contemplate. Yeah. Because I think I think I told you before, friends of mine were on the EU negotiating side from, from Brussels and they were saying, look, not, not for a generation, please. Yeah. Not again. Can't do this thing again. Robert, just what I ask, you've been covering UK politics now for 25 odd years. Is there a time in history or in recent history where you feel that the UK is in this similar type of crisis or is this something quite new? Can you go back and say, ah, okay, no. we had that in the late 70s, we had sure. that in the okay. 80s. And, so you know. I've been covering it for 30 years and interested in it for slightly longer. Where are the parallels? I can see parallels in the late 70s when the country, again, was clearly failing not to work. It was in dire financial circumstances and you had issues around the power of the trade union movement, that kind of thing. And the, a need for some fairly radical financial and social engineering to move the country forward. I think that is a part parallel. Obviously, Brexit was meant to be a piece of social and financial engineering. And in some senses, it was. But I think 
I can never recall a period like the period of the Brexit negotiations where the entire political system failed, ground to a halt. I can't recall a prime minister like Boris Johnson ever. There's a book that's just come out today, I think, called Johnson at 10. Oh, yeah, I've been, I've been reading the reviews of it. Which is extraordinary. Uh, and even as someone who basically knew almost everything that was in this book, to read it in a cumulative form, you just sit you know, it's like emerging from an abusive relationship. It's striking <laughs> that this happened. So I, I can't recall a circumstance like that before. So what do we have now? We have a situation where it feels like the crisis is over, but the mess still exists, and we've got to work through it. But I think we sort of, I think there is a sense in Britain that we've sort of made our bed. And now we require leaders who've got to work through. But I think one of the things that we're not hearing, um, either from the government or the opposition, you know, and as you know, the Labour Party has a commanding lead on the opinion polls, which many of us think is, 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 is very soft. But, you know, they are not telling us how, as the party of change, they intend to affect any change. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not as if you're hearing this new plan. It, it, it's a real problem. And I think I look at the issue around, say, public service reform, public sector reform, which is cryingly and clearly major reform of the NHS is required, significant reform of the civil service is required. There are lots of areas where we have to go through the British state and say, this is no longer fit for the times we live in. And one needs a government that's going to do that. And one doesn't see that. I mean, the Conservatives under Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove clearly had that critique and they weren't always wrong in their critique, but they were just completely incapable of delivering it and wrapped it up in sort of political warfare that made one mistrust their efforts to tamper with the constitution, often rightly. But that is the issue I think we're all looking at. It's interesting when you hear ex-leaders, Tony Blair, William Hague, people like this talking about where we, the country needs, what it needs to be talking about, the challenges of AI, the challenges of green tech, the world economy that we're moving into, you know, global migration crisis quite possibly, probably. And you just don't hear this from the government. We've become, yeah. I think, quite insular in our approach to the problems that we have. And so I think what you feel is we're through the worst of a crisis, but we're sort of bumbling along. Maybe the early 70s is a better period. And we're waiting for someone who can come forward with a compelling agenda for how they're going to make the leap into the next set of challenges. And just before you go, you, you mentioned the word constitution there. For many non-Brits, certainly for a lot of Irish people looking at the uh, the events over the weekend of the coronation, it's like, wow, that's amazing. You have like a royal family that is on top of a system, a class system. Many of the things that we would see are wrong with the UK are in, embodied in that monarchy. Where is the Republican movement in England? You know, every now and then the Republican movement spikes up in the UK and there's a crisis and there was a sense that, oh, well, you know, as yeah. long as the Queen was alive... Republicanism as a as a constitutional force because she was much loved. Now you've got Charles. Is there any Republican movement incipient in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I don't totally accept your uh, underpinning I, analysis. I, I knew you wouldn't, but it's only to go. That's all. very having a go. <laughs> whether one whether one is a monarchist or not, I don't. Th I think I think the monarchy is actually largely divorced from the issues of British society. It's a separate cherry on the top of our society. It's completely, you know, part soap opera, part constitutional monarchy. And people watch it and they like it or they dislike it, but it has actually almost no impact on, on, on their lives. Republicanism in Britain is there. You know, there are, I've seen numbers pushing the people who would not support the monarchy up to 20%. It's much stronger, as you expect, among younger people. 
the loss of the Sussexes and of Meghan Markle is sort of, it's dismissed by people who are most committed to the monarchy because, you know, these people just didn't understand how it worked and they were taking the mick and, you know, they're whining. And so it's interesting when you talk to younger people, the support for Meghan Markle is deeper. People liked her. It was an opportunity to put a different sort of face on the monarchy. Yeah. Although what can be overstated given how quickly Harry slides down the pecking order as others come along. But I don't think republicanism is strong yet. You can see how it could be somewhere down the line. I think what's more likely, and it'll be interesting how it plays out, is we start to see dominions which still have the king as head of state saying, we've had enough of this now. It's time for someone who lives in our country. Yeah. And more important, we're talking about the kind of countries that will be felt here, Australia, Canada. Yeah, I think Australia and Canada and New Zealand are the three big ones. And Canada has always had quite a strong Republican tendency, obviously because it's half French. And so I think if and when you start to see those countries removing the monarchy, and I don't think any of them are hurrying into it, even Australia, which has a Republican premier, then the questions start to get asked again. But I also think there's a sort of sentimentality about Diana's children and denying the monarchy to them and so on. So my sense is it's not going anywhere anytime soon without some huge and unforeseeable existential crisis. We will leave it there. I'm already in my merchant ivory phase of yet another sort of period drama of the monarchy. To it's time to say the pl- You know, we're taking up, there's a pledge, don't you? We, we have, to, have you heard about this? The pledge? <laughs> oh, yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Oh, tell me. So this is one of those great things where clearly somebody came up with an idea in a committee and no one, and no one remembered telling him not to tell anybody else. So obviously at the actual coronation, the people who are there, particularly the important people who are there, take this two line pledge of allegiance to the king, to his king and his heirs and successors, Pledge of Allegiance. You know, it's two sentences. Somebody said, you know, because obviously we're all about inclusion and participation. Somebody said, actually, everyone in the country could say this. <laughs> and out it comes to say, everyone in the country can take this pledge to their television at the same time. <laughs> obviously, even died in the wool monarchists are looking at this and going, are you off your trolley? Um, so, you know, it, that, that is the great joke of the week, is how many people are going to take the Pledge of Allegiance while standing in front of their 42-inch LED television? I have, I have the image of the Shrimthies on bended knee <laughs> taking allegiance. <laughs> we, we may actually just be lying down. We may be prostrating ourselves fully. Okay. <laughs> on that beautiful visual, on that beautiful visual, we will leave it. Robert, listen, great, and I'll see you in talking. Looking Can't forward wait. to it. Have a pint and we'll have a chat. It'll be wonderful. Take care. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, Mac, let's just pick up on some of the things that Robert was saying there. And I know we're not dealing with the local elections. That's a bit of a red herring in this thing, I think, anyway. But one thing I did find interesting what he said was that Rishi Sunak was a competent manager of the economy and is doing a relatively good job because Britain has kind of settled down now and all that kind of stuff, or settling. But then, you know, you were asking about the historical perspective and he cited the end of the 70s. So I'm kind of wondering, is, do you think that Sunak could be another, not quite a Thatcher, but another strong figure to emerge that actually could spark a new era for the UK? It's, it's interesting you ask that question. Uh, a fellow who, whose opinion I respect about politics doesn't give many opinions, but when he does, does tend to have something very interesting to say, said to me that he felt that Sunak could actually rule for three terms of office. Wow. That, I thought it was really wow. interesting. I hadn't thought that at all. Yeah, but the, the, the polls and local elections don't reflect that. John, what the last thing we're going to do is do a Sky News now and get into the bloody local elections in the UK, right? But what is right. important for our audience is to actually look at the broader United Kingdom. And what we forget is England is a Tory country, mm. right? You know, when you strip it back, Labour are the party of opposition. We are totally beguiled by the fact that in our adult lifetime, Tony Blair got three Labour victories. That was very, very unusual in the context since the Second World War. Yeah. We even go back towards the Tories and the Liberals, even a hundred years go back. This is a Tory nation, right? Yeah. And so it's very hard for the Labour Party to win. So I wonder, and, is, is Starmer going to be another Kinnock? Well, that's a very interesting, that's very interesting because what, what Robert said, and he, he, just, he, just, he just threw it in passing there, but it was interesting. He says, he says the lead that the Labour Party have in the polls over the Tories, he said, is very soft. You yeah. know, it's, it's actually, it's, a, it's the sort of lead you have a couple of years out from an election, right? So that's the first thing. That, and that's quite, quite interesting. That mm. This is a Tory nation at its core. Yeah. And the, a Labour government is an unlikely event. The more likely event is a Tory government. So, you know, Jesus. you could be right. Sunak could be in for, for a long time. He's also very young, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. I wonder, though, is, is it his people around him that might bring him down? You know, the Cruella, Braverman and Dominic Grabs and all those. the way. Exactly. That's always the way. So we'll, we'll see. Right. OK, fair enough. But, but what about the late 70s comparison that, that Robert made? OK, so let's just... Paint a picture. If Robert is right, and there are parallels with the late 70s, and the nation needs a rebooting, so to speak, then the 80s was very, very traumatic for the UK. I mean, by the late 80s, they were coming out of an incredibly traumatic six or seven years. 
So you have the miners' strike. First of all, you have the Great Recession, right? Mm. You have a total denuding of the north of England of its industrial base and yeah. the Midlands. I remember when we were kids watching the news, and I was always amazed there would be news like would say like four thousand jobs have gone today in British Leyland and two thousand jobs at some sort of massive coal mine and a thousand jobs at a steel worker, yeah. four thousand jobs you know in a shipyard. I mean, these are enormous figures, right? And your dad used to drive a Leyland. Of course he did. Of course he did. The one that we used to push. Every morning. This this comes back to what Michael D was saying, right? Mm. Is that sometimes in economics, economists talk about unemployment as a number. And what Michael D's tried to talk to them is about unemployment is a story. And every individual's story comes together to be the gelling agent of a society. And unless you see every unemployment number as a story, which is a family, which is children, which is, as I said, the foundational basis of the society, then it doesn't really matter when you're talking numbers. You don't get to the heart and soul. And I use that expressively, the heart and soul of the economy, because you've got the head of the economy and then you have the heart and soul of the economy. And maybe that's what Michael D was saying. And if Robert is right, and the urge of politicians is to go for a massive fix, a new big idea, yeah. then the UK could be unmoored for the next half decade. And that won't be very easy for people, particularly the people living over there. Yeah, I I, I know what you mean, Mark. But like we've always talked on, on this podcast about the UK actually needs a plan, needs a big plan and something Did- new. John, what they need is a 20-year plan. What the UK tends to have very, very good at is 20-minute plans, right? <laughs> so you get a politician coming in and saying, we're going to cut the bond market, we're going to cut this, we're going to do this, 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 we're going to yeah. do the markets. And they, they, they want everything done too quickly. You know, economic time and human time are very different creatures. Economic time doesn't care about the Roman calendar. Yeah. Economic time doesn't know what February is. The economy doesn't know what July is. It doesn't see that. So everything's much more long-term. And I think the problem with the UK is they need a plan, but they need to give whatever plan they come up with the time to breathe. And I think it's almost impossible to do that when the UK is so beholden to the media, which requires and demands that they come up with quick fixes all the time. And if you don't, suddenly you're in the front of the sun or the mirror or whatever, the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph as a mm. loser. Yeah, and that's yeah. the big fear, you know? And, that's, and that's, that's what dominates the UK is this vicious media. And it dominates all their thinking and it makes them entirely short-term in a world that requires long-term thinking. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.